Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Good morning. Beautiful, bright, shiny faces out there. Everyone got enough rest this week that they don't fall asleep in church today? No one's answering that question, so we'll just move on. <laughs> uh, we are going to be in Philippians 2 this morning and James 2, so it's easy. Philippians and James chapter 2. Uh, We'll also be looking at Matthew 23 and 25, but we won't be digging in there specifically. But if you want to look there, you can mark those for yourself. But do look at Philippians 2 and James chapter 2. 1989. Anybody remember that year? Oh, yeah. Keno does. That's awesome. 1989, a youth group came out with a new cool little slang for their youth group called WWJD. Anybody ever heard of that? What would Jesus do? That's what it stands for. What would Jesus do? That little acronym, WWJD. Well, the idea caught on not only at youth groups across America, but in some churches and also, now believe this or not, but it also caught on with a lot of advertisers and marketers who found a new venue to produce bookmarks and Bible covers and chains and bracelets and necklaces, all stating what? WWJD, right? It became so popular that we don't even question it now. But because of that, because of all the t-shirts, because of all the jewelry and all the bumper stickers and all the paraphernalia that came out of that, some say that the real message of what would Jesus do got lost in a frenzy. Well, think about it. When's the last time you actually looked and said, what would Jesus do in my situation right here and right now? I mean, we know the acronym WWJD, but this morning we want to look at that of, is WWJD passe? Is it old news? Has it kind of come and gone? Have we lost our flair for it? Or is it a question that we should be asking on a regular basis as Christians? Of what would Jesus do in my situation, my decision, my circumstance, my family relationship, my work situation? What would Jesus do? Because as Christians, isn't that really the main question that we should be asking? It's not, what would John do, or Kenno, or Richard, or Christy, or Alan, or Laura, Laura, or Tara? It's like, what would Jesus do? Because again, our lives state that we have died to ourself in salvation, and the life that we now live, current, present, future, going forward, the life that we now live, we live for who? Jesus Christ. So once again, the hard confrontation that we face as Christians is our life isn't about us anymore. Not about what we want, what we think, what we should think we should be doing. It's about what Christ would have us do in the will of God his Father. It's WWJD. What would Jesus do right now in my situation, in my circumstance, in my relationship, in my job? What would Jesus do? Why? so that I may do that also and imitate the life of Christ, which my life is now about. Philippians chapter 2, we come across a very moving and very direct passage from Paul's writing. Some of you may have it, the heading in your Bibles where it says, Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And isn't that what WWJD is all about? Adopting the attitude that was in Christ so let's read Philippians 2, verses 1 to 18, to see what Paul is saying that the attitude of Jesus Christ is and how that's incorporated in our life. 
Because as we've talked about over the years, the Bible is not just a good literary book to read or to listen to. It's actually a life application book, isn't it? It's a book of God speaking to us, saying, here's how I would have you to act and imitate me. Here's what I would have you to do. Here are the decisions I would have you to make in your situation. So Philippians 2, starting with verse 1, I'm reading out of New American Standard. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love among you, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, John's translation, if any of you are really Christian, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing. And you good Greek scholars, when it says nothing in the New Testament in Greek, what does it really mean? Nothing. nothing. <laughs> Do nothing from selfish or empty deceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also, where? In Christ, in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in a likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Notice somebody didn't have to humble him. He humbled himself. So what's the message for us? We should humble ourselves, just as the song we just sang. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Verse 8, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to God the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue, and Greek scholars, when it says every, what does it mean? Every saved and unsaved, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, speaking to the church, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for whose good pleasure? His. His good pleasure. My life is now dead to me. And the life I now live, I live unto Jesus Christ, unto his good pleasure. Verse 14. Oh, here's where it gets really hard. Do all things, and Greek scholars, all means all, without grumbling or disputing. Isn't that a lovely verse to have? We can apply that one today. Well, at least for five minutes, right? Without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach 
where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation all around you, among whom you appear as lights to the world, holding fast to what? The word of life, which is the Bible, holding fast to that, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Amen. Now, everybody, end of sermon, just go home and do that the rest of the week. And then we'll come up and we'll pick up next Sunday with the next chapter. Easy enough? Oh, uh, do yeah. we have to? <laughs> well, we almost made it five minutes. <laughs> it's good to have humor in a church. When we really dig into that and look at that and God speaking to us and saying, this is how I want you to have your life, to have this mind of Christ, to, to humble yourselves, to come as a servant, to not only look out for yourself but the lives of others, to not grumble and complain, to seek God's will, to do God's will, to be kind, but to hold fast to what the Word of God says. Those are really pretty profound words. But how many of you, like me in my life, when we've gone through and read this passage in the Bible, can read that through and ten minutes later can't remember a darn thing that we just read. That's where we take time to dig down and dig into this word to see what God is saying to us. Because it's a personal message. It's that love letter from Jesus Christ saying, I love you the way you are, but I have more for you. If you'll just hear my advice. Isn't that what we do with children? We have them and we're like, I know you know what you're doing is you love it and you like it, but I have something better for you if you'll just listen to me as your parent or your teacher or your instructor and let me show you a better way, a better thing, a better life. Well, although that story of the youth group in 1989 started the push of WWJD, which stands for, what would Jesus do? It was not the first to use that phrase. Nope, in fact, we can go back one step further, back to 1896, Notice that's 1896, not 1986. Back to 1896 by a book written by Charles Sheldon. Well, you all remember Charles, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good old Charles. Charles was a minister and leader of the social gospel movement. The whole movement, now catch this. This is kind of radical and crazy. You're going to be knocked off your seats with this. The whole social gospel movement was about applying Christian biblical ethics and precepts to social problems and issues. Whoa! Did you catch that? Actually taking God's Word, the Bible, and its principles and precepts, and applying it in real life to the social problems that were going on. Crime, theft, hunger, divorce, poverty. What a radical concept! I mean, instead of just doing like we do today, just throw more money at it and stimulus packages, just put a Band-Aid on it and make them happy for another week to get by, actually putting biblical principles and precepts at the issue and actually solving the problem. Now, I have a personal issue on this, so please forgive me if this rubs you the wrong way, but it's kind of like going to see the psychiatrist or the counselor. I mean, 
How many times do you see the psychiatrist or the counselor until you're fixed? Anybody know? Twice? More than that? Six times? Ten times? Twenty? A year? You can go to the psychiatrist and the counselor how long? The rest of your life and not get fixed. Now you can talk to a nice person, you can pay them to listen to you is what you're really doing, right? They can give you some advice, good or bad, but you can go there all your life and not get fixed. Where we come to Christ, Christ says, I want to change you and make you complete, where the work is finished, that you're whole, just the way you are. And applying things to social issues, what a radical concept in our government to take what Christ said about all these issues, family relationships and poverty and finances and health, and apply them to the social issues of our time. Do you think that would have a radical difference? Because the goal of the gospel is to bring forth healing and to fix things, not to leave them broken and limping along until they finally expire, which is what happens nowadays. So this social gospel movement was to take all the things that the Bible talks about and try and apply them in social and ethical issues, but also, now catch this, hold your seats, I know we're not on a plane, but reach down and grab hold of the rims on those seats to apply Christ's principles and precepts to your personal life. Whoa. That's going to blow you away, doesn't it? Imagine, just a hundred plus years ago, this preacher's coming out with this major movement to say, hey, what a radical concept to take the Bible, the Word of God, and actually apply it to your life. Doesn't that sound crazy? That's what WWJD was all about. To take the things of Jesus and to put them into what the Bible calls good works. Now, good works, let's clarify this very, very clearly. We are not saved by doing good works, being good moral people, giving to the church, being baptized. We are not saved by that, but we do those things as a result of our salvation, right? Because Christ has so impacted us, we seek to honor and glorify him by giving and doing and serving just as he did. So that's a result of our salvation, not to attain salvation as some believe. But the Bible does talk specifically about proving your salvation, giving evidence that you are born again. In fact, let's look at James chapter 2. James, that mild-mannered, mild unconfrontive little person, right? This James had to be about four foot nine because he seriously had short man syndrome. He just put it out there, right? James chapter two, verses eighteen and twenty-one tells us this more about this issue of proving our faith with good works and evidence of our Christianity. He says this, verse eighteen. But someone may well say to me, "You have faith, and I have works." Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. But catch this, verse 19. You believe that God is one? Huh, well, you do well. Do you know the demons believe also? And they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, faith without proof, faith without evidence, faith without life change, 
is useless. That's WWJD in practical life. I'm in a situation, I'm in a relationship, I've got to make a financial decision. I know what I would do, or I'll kind of roll the dice or turn a magic eight ball. But as a Christian, what would Jesus do? And the precepts and principles of his Bible. Now, Charles Sheldon and the Social Grace Movement of the late 1800s was actually about incorporating the Bibles, the ways of Jesus, into our changed lives in the daily life. Pretty crazy. Actually proving our faith, giving evidence of our faith, and serving others instead of a lot of just wayward talk about, well, I am such a great Christian. Well, I go to church every Sunday because I'm the pastor and I have to, right? It's not about talk. It's about doing. So Charles wrote a 140-page book, which we have in our library, called, in the, in the book, and the first what would Jesus do phrase is actually in there. And if you're not a reader, you can go on YouTube this week. There's a 2013 version of the movie on YouTube if you want to watch it on there. So the story is about Reverend Maxwell, Henry Maxwell, and he's pastor of the First Church of Raymond. After he and several of his church members have a run-in with a homeless man who confronts the whole congregation, life changes. I'll give you a little key in on what happens. Homeless man who's gone through tremendous loss in his life walks into this little town where the first church of Raymond is. And he walks to several businesses and to several individuals and even the pastor and he says, I am down and out on my luck. Can you help me? And they all kind of say, shoo, 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 shoo. you're a dirty homeless man. Go away, but God bless you in one way or another. And at the end of this week, during service, as a beginning service, this homeless man walks into this church and recognizes the faces of all the people that he's asked for help to be able to work to earn his keep to help him out in his short-term being. And after they've sang all the beautiful hymns and talked about the love of Christ and taken communion, they're closing the church and the homeless man walks up and says, you know, folks, you have plaques in your homes and in your businesses about the Bible. You talk about being in church and you show up and you look good, but you do nothing. You don't emulate the life of Christ. You tell those that are different than you to go away, to be unseen and unheard. You're not like us. You're dirty, you're filthy, you're homeless, so go away. And he confronts the church and just says, you know, you're living a lie. You're here, you're all dolled up, you're prissy, you're giving, you're singing the hymns and stuff, but you're not doing what Jesus would do. In the movie, the homeless man passes out at that point and dies in the hospital. As a result of that, the pastor is confronted with what he's read that week in Matthew 23 when Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside with that nice white coat of paint on that tombstone, but in the inside, you're still dead and rotten. You're just a shell for observing, but you're not living and active and born again. You're not a new creation. And the pastor is so moved that he gets up the next Sunday 
And he says, we as a church, for those who are willing, are going to come forth, and I'm going to stop the service now and go into the foyer, and those who want to join me, come join me, because we are going to start doing today a new thing for the entire year. In every situation, in every decision, in every question that we have, we're going to first ask, what would Jesus do, and then make the decision based off of that. If you're willing to do that, join me in the foyer. Well, about six people out of the church join him in the foyer, and they make that commitment to say, what would Jesus do in every question, decision, and circumstance they run into? To go beyond that, after about two or three weeks, the church board comes to the pastor and basically say, um, we have to move you out of here. And when he says why, they're saying, well, you're getting a little bit too radical for us in what you're doing. You see, tithing is up, membership is up, and you're putting people in a place to say, what would Jesus do? What are you doing? Why would you rock the boat? And they oust the pastor because he asked them to ask a question of what would Jesus do and apply that to their life. In the book and in the movie, there is one lady that as they're trying to go through this, and these six individuals plus the, plus the pastor are struggling because now suddenly their life is radically changed. Because everything they come into, every decision, they ask that question, and they're not making the decisions like they did before. In fact, some of the six in the pastor lose their jobs, they lose friends, they have other issues, their family turns their back on them, but the good news is at the end, all six plus the pastor end up being blessed because they have chosen to live for Jesus. But in the midst of that, there's one woman that stands up and she says, Pastor, how do I know what Jesus would do you see, Pastor, times are different. That was 2,000 years ago. It's been hundreds of years since Jesus is here, and he lived in a completely different culture and society. How do I know what Jesus would do? And the pastor simply replies to her and says, Madam, the only answer that I have for you is this, to look at how Jesus lived and to look at what Jesus did and then do what Jesus would do. You see, it's a message of biblical literacy that we have to face. One of actually reading the Bible, and actually not just reading it like a novel in history or a biography, but digging into it. Digging in and taking time to see what the Word of God says as it speaks to us. Because the Bible says of itself that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword willing to cut through bone and marrow. The imagery is it's willing to cut through that which is blocking it to reach the depth of the heart to impact the heart, to change things. The Bible is there to be living and active. That's why we joke about, not so funny sometimes, that you can read the same passage of the Bible three years ago that you just read today, and it speaks to you in a different place because it's living and active. It's the Word of God spoken unto us. And the Bible should have impact upon our life. The problem is, most people that speak about the Bible, even in church today, have an opinion about the Bible. 
They don't actually know what it says or know the history of the life of Jesus Christ. They've never actually read the Bible. Now, they may have read the 23rd Psalms or Psalm 1, something like that, or maybe John 3.16, but they haven't read the wholeness of the Bible, and that's God's message to us. So we're going to dive into this, what would Jesus do a little bit more? But just in case you're wondering, this uh, book, In His Steps, from Charles Sheldon, that's in our library, that we get the what would Jesus do, that's not the first time. Back in 1418, Thomas Kempis wrote in The Imitation of Christ about this picture of asking, what would Jesus do in my situation? Going back even further, I think in the New Testament, Jesus encourages his disciples to say, what would God do in this situation, right? Old Testament, God has the prophets, and the prophets were there to speak what? What would God do? That's why the prophets were there, to proclaim this is what God would have you do, different than what you're doing now, right? So let's break this down a little bit. Point one, ask yourself a question. And here's the question. Is there more to just going to church and meeting the status quo? Showing up and singing and listening to a sermon that goes on and on and on and tithing and having a little fellowship or a donut afterwards. Is there more to church than that? Is there more to your Christianity to that? Well, I hope so. But like in the book, here's the question. In the book, in its steps, the church leadership confronts the pastor because they're like, look, pastor, attendance and giving are up. Why would you mess with what we're doing? And the pastor's response is, because we are not living as Christ would have us live. Well, we all show up nice and pretty. We all give, we all participate a little bit. But we walk out these doors and there's no impact of the gospel upon our life. There's no impact of the life of Christ living in us, impacting us. And I don't believe that's the message for us today. But I do believe it's a message for us to question to where can God speak deeper and more in depth to our lives. To move us to greater heights in the gospel, to greater ministries. I still have uh, the precept or one of the quotes that we had a couple weeks ago about a man that was praying and God saying, he asked God why he wasn't answering his prayers. And God kind of spoke to him and said, with goals only that big, you don't need God. We need to have aspirations for Christ that are bigger than us, that go beyond us. Because what that does is it puts us in a place of faith where we can't do it. And that's such a good place to be, right? Oh, it's such an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? To put yourself in a place where you can't fix it, you can't change it, it's bigger than you, but it's a glorious place of faith to say, God, I know that you can, and that's why I'm here. Because I'm here for you to do the miracle and me to go along for the ride. Doesn't Jesus say, follow me? I'll lead and do the stuff. I'll part the seas. I'll do the miracles. You follow me into the promised land. And again, like we read in Philippians, without grumbling, without complaining, like the Egyptian, like the Israelites did, right? Follow me and give joy. Well, there's a thing in 
It's not spoken of this way in the Bible, but it's spoken of in theology about sin. When you and I go out and we sin on purpose, you know, we're just like, heck with it. I'm done. I deserve this. I'm tired of this goody two-shoes attitude. I'm going to do this for me. We know we're sinning, right? That's obvious. But there's this thing in theology called a sin of omission that sometimes infiltrates even the church. And a sin of omission is a sin of this way. Well, I actually know the right thing to do, and I know what the Bible says, but I'm just going to pretend like I don't and kind of walk my own way. Right? It's ignoring the truth of the gospel, ignoring the truth of God's way, and just saying, well, maybe I didn't quite hear that. La, 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 la. And I'll walk away and do what I want to do anyway and just pretend like I really didn't know. I'm innocent. You know? Ever have children that do that? They walk up and the chocolate cookie is all over their face and all over the carpet. And you're like, what did you do? And they're like, what? Did you get the cookie jar? Why, no. I didn't, right? It's that sin of omission of knowing what we should be doing and not doing it. And that's where the WWJD, the what would Jesus do in my decision right now, in my life right now, in my circumstance, in my relationship, what would Jesus do so I could emulate that? That's where it confronts us, those sins of omission, of knowing what we should do and then following through and doing them. The Bible tells us that in salvation we are radically changed. Not just a little bit, not a bunch, but we are radically transformed into something different. In fact, the Bible calls us a new creation. And therefore, after the metamorphosis takes place in salvation, we should not look nor act the same as we did before. Let me give you an example. Another metamorphosis. Besides, I just want to say that word a bunch today because I think it's really cool. Metamorphosis, right? What do you know that goes through a metamorphosis? A butterfly. Good. Thank you, Lord, for giving the right answer. Okay, I was afraid somebody's going to say something else. A butterfly goes through a metamorphosis. Do you know that a butterfly, once it goes through that metamorphosis of going from a grub to a butterfly, cannot go back? Do you ever see a butterfly that's come out of the cocoon on the National Geographic shows that comes out, stretches its wings out, it gets moving around a little bit, says, hey, it's kind of cold out here. That cocoon was nice and warm. I'm just going to go crawl back in there. You don't see it, do you? Because once the transformation happens, the butterfly doesn't go back for a number of reasons. One, for now, instead of being confined by space to be crawling on the dirt, it's now free to roam throughout the skies to wherever it wants to go. Instead of roaming on the dirt and on the weeds, it can fly to the flowers at the very top of the apple tree or wherever it wants to be. Instead of being an ugly grub, and sorry for those of you who love caterpillars, it's now a beautiful creation that's been changed forever. You see, the butterfly, once it's got out of that encasing, that cocoon that's held it for so long to being a ground, low-life, earth-crawling grub, once it's burst out of that, it is free to fly away. In fact, you read about the migration of the monarch butterflies going not only a little ways, but from continent to continent. That butterfly never tries to go back to be the grub. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ, aren't we? We have gone through the metamorphosis of salvation and been radically transformed. We are now freed from sin, 
We can overcome temptation. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're given a ministry and a purpose to serve and to live out. We're to be Jesus to the world, light and salt that's not hidden. We are ambassadors for Christ. And most of all, we are changed and our life is now lived for Jesus Christ. And we should have evidence of that, shouldn't we? Point blank, if we're being real. If our lives do not reflect that kind of change, then you should stop the sermon right now and you should go back and look at what your definition of salvation is and if it matches up with the biblical definition of salvation. Because the biblical definition of salvation says there is only one way to salvation and that's through the only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. And it's a gift of grace when we repent and surrender and submit to God. There is no other way to gain salvation. And if we are just trying to be goody-two-shoes and good moral people and get through, we are still going to hell. You want to believe me or not? Check out Matthew 25 with what Jesus says about the judgment between the sheep and the goats. It's interesting that the goats, when Jesus is condemning them, they're going, oh, Lord, when? We did all these things. And the basic implication is, yes, you did all these things, but you didn't surrender to God. You did them to look good and to look moral, but you didn't do it as a result of salvation. And because I never knew you, depart from me. You see, it's all about the relationship of knowing Jesus and living for him and being changed. Point number two. Well, we've asked the question, is there more than just coming to church and meeting the status quo? Well, absolutely. There's a whole Christian life out there, an abundant life that God wants us to have. To overcome trials, to be victorious. Question two, how do we know what Jesus would have us to do? Well, we go back to that lady asking the pastor. She said, how do I know what Jesus would have me to do? Times are different now, pastor. It's been hundreds of years since Jesus, and he lived in a completely different culture. And the good pastor replies, Madam, the only answer I have is to tell you is to look at how Jesus lived and at what he did. We have to personally know, intellectually know, the facts about Jesus, the lies about Jesus, like he really didn't have a spirit brother. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He was fully God, fully man. He's the only one that can forgive sins. We have to know the facts, the lies. Jesus was not married while on this world as the Gnostic Gospels, the false gospel state. We have to know the truth. And what that means is we have to dig deep individually into God's Word. To dig in when it states something to say, how does this impact me? How do I apply this to me? Don't you just get up every morning and read that? You're like, doo, 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 it's Bible time. Let me read this. And the first question is, God, show me something here that you can apply to my life today, right? Well, most times we get up and we do what? Uh, I got to read three chapters of Lamentations <laughs> today. That's going to be wonderful. Let's just get it done, right? We read it. We put the book up and we go on, right? Anybody else do that? It's about sitting down and saying, God, what do you have for me this morning in your word? And as I've shared before, there are lazy people in the church, pew sitters, pseudo-Christians, that have an opinion about what God said, 
but they're lazy. Lazy being this, I say they're spiritually lazy because they will not take or make the time to study about the real life of Jesus Christ, to study the culture and history of the Bible and what was being said in the Bible and how to apply that. It's much easier to hear someone say something and say, oh, I like that. Well, I'm going to go with that theology. Well, the Bible says something about this. Well, the Bible says, you know what, you're a Christian, so you should just love me and forgive me all the time, right? You should never hold me accountable. Is that what the Bible says? No. There is forgiveness, but there's also a very real accountability. Right? It's not a free-for-all. It's not being a spiritual doormat for people to walk on and take advantage of. It's about standing our ground firm for Christ and saying, no, that's not the truth. You are wrong. And when they say, well, well, I heard it from some pastor, it's like, well, show it to me in the Bible. That's the key, is digging and studying in the Bible. Second thing is we need to look at how Jesus lived and what he did. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God the Father, that there's salvation only through him when we repent and have faith and surrender to him, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came to earth to serve, not to be served. Initially, he came as a symbolic lamb in the form of a baby to come into this earth to live and act as we did. But when he returns, he will come as a roaring lion taking those home that are his and casting others out. He will not return as a lamb. He will come back as a lion. Jesus lived humbly, actually financially poor, but he did work. He was a carpenter by trade, right? He was honest, he was hopeful, he was joyful, he was compassionate. He was protective of what belonged to God. When he saw the, the money changers in the temple, he drove in and pushed them out because that was holy ground and that belonged to his Father God and he would protect it with his life. Jesus always submitted to his Father's will and lived his faith in action even when it cost him his own life. Pretty powerful stuff. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, most of what he did in his public ministry was in three short years, right? He healed those who were blind, lame, and sick. He brought the dead back to life. He cast out demons. He walked on water and always had faith. He prayed and cried over the lost. He gave everything, including his very life, to do his Father's will. He held the outcast, he loved the ugly, and he fellowshiped with the down and out. He led many to salvation. He called men and women to become fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. He called those who would be his disciples to live like he lived. He confronted lies and false religion. He fed the hungry. He turned water into wine to bless a wedding. He calmed the raging seas with just a word. He cursed a fig tree that would produce no fruit and give no evidence of being a fig tree. He taught that we harvest what we plant and that we better be planting. He taught the truth privately and publicly. He went to where the needs were instead of waiting for the needy to come to him. He loved unconditionally. He set people free spiritually and culturally. He was direct about the judgment and the eternal future of those who would not serve him as Savior. He talked about hell and handling money and handling things responsibly. He taught us how to treat those we love with honor and respect and how to bless our enemies. He came to preach and teach the gospel 
with anyone who would hear it, and so much more in only three short years. That's a lot. We want to know, what would Jesus do? We go back and we study the, the Bible of what Jesus, what God did, and his precepts that are in there. And we say, how does this impact my life? We look at what Jesus did. Well, we may not be able to bring the dead back to life. Ken and I are working on a little electronics thing to try, you know, but I don't think it's going to work too well. We may not be able to heal the blind and the sick, but we can speak to them and comfort them. We can share with them. We can feed the hungry. We can cry with the hurting. We can rejoice with the joyful. We can serve. We can be Christ to anyone who will listen. We can do those things. Point three, we need to be a changed people, don't we? As Christians, as new creations, going through the metamorphosis, the transformation of salvation, we need to be a changed people. I don't actually think the WWJD theme came from 1989 or 1896 or 1418 with the imitation of Christ. I think it's right there in the Bible for Christians every day. That once we're transformed, we ask God, how would you have me to live? What would you have me to do? But here's the third question. You ready for this? How do you live a life that you don't know how to live? You ever tried to do something that you don't know how to do? Ever have a boss or someone come up to you and say, hey, just go do this and take care of this and fix this. And you're like, I don't know anything about that. We joke about the fact now that we've got YouTube there, right? YouTube is my friend when it comes to fixing things around my house. I can look up a video of how somebody fixed it and almost imitate them, right? But how do we live a life that we've never lived before? Our life before Christ was all about us. It was selfish. It was self-absorbed. It was all about me and what I can get and gain and have and possess. How do I live a life as a servant, compassionate, blessing my enemies, forgiving, being with those who are hurting, talking with the wounded and forgiving, but still holding my ground in Jesus Christ and not giving up, being long-suffering and persevering? Well, you can't, can you? You can't do something you don't know how to do. So what's the solution? Figure out how to do it, right? Is there an instruction manual? Yeah, it's called the Bible, right? We dig in again to God's Word. I want you to play a fun game this week. Everybody in here like games? Unless they come from the pastor, right? <laughs> Those are not fun games. They're only fun for him. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool this week? I think it would be. Wouldn't it be fun this week every day to do something new? Are you with me? Richard's got this sign up back there. He's casting me out right now. Get behind me. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun every day this week until we meet again next Sunday to do something you haven't been doing? A fun game. Here's the game. It's easy. You can all do it because I know you all have Bibles at your house, right? And I know you get up and you want to spend time with Jesus to start your day off right every morning, right? It's three in the afternoon. Oh, I forgot to have quiet time. Well, let me do this. Wouldn't it be fun 
to wake up every morning this week after the Sunday. And as you spend time with God, your first prayer is, Lord, when I read this, I want you to show me one, just one single thing, not a bunch, not 15 or 20, like John read in Philippians, just one thing you want me to actually live out and try to find a way to apply in my life today. Well, didn't that sound like fun? If you're watching on video, I just lost the whole church. That's what what would Jesus do is all about. That's what being transformed is all about. That as we sink in and read the Word of God, we don't just read it through and forget it. We dig into it. We say, Lord, show me something. Give me one nugget today, one gold nugget that I can spend the rest of the day trying to figure out how to apply in my life. Just one. We can all handle one, right? 40 or 50 is overwhelming, but one. Here's the cool thing. If you do that every day, at the end of the leap year, you've done it 365 times. At the end of two years, you're well over 700.